have the power to captivate audience and inspire fear. And when it comes to horror movies, franchises, no franchise is quite like The Conjuring series. Being based on true events, The Conjuring has elicited fear into the hearts of believers. However, the portrayal of the exorcists and demonology have been greatly exaggerated for viewership. In this podcast, we would discuss the process of exorcism through the Catholic Church and the toll it can have on the body. Then we will take the time to analyze the differences between The Conjuring films and real life, and we will finally discuss what constitutes being based on a true story. My name is Chase. My name is Chris. And this is Demonology and the Conjuring. So I want to kind of just start off and ask, what is an exorcism? It's a question that seems kind of like, it seems obvious, but like, we don't really have like a concrete answer for. Right. So what what I'm going to do is I'm just going to try to like go through what we believe is an exorcism, like through the Catholic Church, Mm because like, that's pretty much what... That's what people tend to perceive as an exorcism when you see it in film, right? Exactly. Like most films go through the Catholic Church. Mm -hmm. So the Catholic Encyclopedia defines exorcism as the act of driving out or warding off demons or evil spirits from a person's places or things which are believed to be possessed or infested by them. So uh, another important aspect of this is these are divided into three different categories. So first is like the baptismal exorcism. So that's like when you're like a really young kid, they take like the holy water, sprinkle it on your face. It's just kind of to get rid of that original sin. So something that's kind of seen, like I know one example that is like in The Godfather, that's a really big scene in that film. Exactly. They're showing that that type of exorcism, or that type of baptismal exorcism. Exactly. Something like that. Okay. Yes. Uh, The next type would be a simple exorcism. So that's just kind of like blessing a place or a thing. Uh, It's just to get rid of like different evil spirits. So, um, and the final one, and this is the one that we're going to be discussing, like, fully in this, is the real exorcism. And that's, like, the thriving around, demon-infested, like, that type of stereotype. The the one people think of when they see the exorcist, you know, the head turning 360 degrees, (laughs) the the crab walking down the stairs. Exactly. That's the type that we're going to be discussing in this podcast. Uh, So, some of the signs... Uh, Some of the signs would be including the loss or lack of appetite, uh, cutting, scratching, or biting of skin, a cold feeling in the room. I'm just going to stop here for a second. A lot of these do not seem like possessions. They just seem like a Saturday evening for me. Like... (laughs) Okay, but a cold feeling in the room, I mean, it could be winter outside and you don't have a fire going in the living room. I mean, like, exactly. I look at that and I go, wait a minute, how does that lead to sign of possession? Same with loss or lack of appetite. Like, maybe you're just not <laughs> hungry. hungry. Like, like I, I don't know. Okay, cutting, scratching, and biting of skin, that could, okay, maybe, but that could also lead into other, you know, psychological and psychiatrical yeah. diagnoses that it clearly aren't. Are and, and we will cover that later it, on. Right, right? absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so another thing is a natural body bodily posture. So like the, the turning of the head, like that kind of stuff. Um, the possessed losing control of their normal personality. Uh, changes in person's voices, which can see, be seen really in the country too, the country which we we'll cover later. Yeah, absolutely. Um, speaking in tongues. Uh, knowledge of past events of the person that cannot be known about. So I think that kind of t- ties into a lot of people with like reincarnation. They believe right that like they've had like a past life or, exactly. or, or something like that along those lines. Yeah. So it, that would kind of I associate with that with mm-hmm. um, levitation and moving of objects. Okay. Okay. Now I just I have to stop here. Is there ever any actual witness of levitation? Like that's the thing. Like, like you hear all of these 
witnesses come forward and say like, oh, I saw like so-and-so levitating off the bed, which maybe yeah. that comes up in The Conjuring too, which we'll talk about. But also like objects, desks, chairs, like how accurate is that? Like, I think that also raises the suspicion of like, okay, or is this a hallucination? Is this something that is actually happening? I don't know. And it, it can also be faked pretty easily. Uh, yeah. Like, and I think that's something else that, you know, when people go like, oh, it's a hoax, like it can be faked. It's the same follows in with like, especially moving with objects. I mean, you could have something tied to a string for crying out You can be tied to a string. You could be tied to a string. Right. Like, exactly. Like, uh, we don't know that. So yeah, those are those are some of the signs that uh, can kind of portray like what it's like to be like possessed. Uh, so let's say you have one of those. Or multiple of those. Right. Uh, how would you go about getting a priest to help you? So what I did is I, I pulled up an article. Uh, it was on the Archdiocese of Washington. <laughs> and basically their page of what to do if you want to get exorcism. <laughs> okay. Um, so basically, let's just start out. There are a couple bullets, like points. I'm just going to talk about those. Yeah. Um, for Catholics or non-Catholics residing in the Archdiocese of Washington, the first step is to request an appointment with his or her local parish priest. Makes that, sense. That makes sense. I mean, yeah, if you live in the area, you can go to a priest and go from there. But, but the thing that gets me, not only do they have one, but they have two disclaimers saying that if you reside outside of the diocese, they cannot help you. So so they're basically saying if you have to cross state lines or cross district lines, yeah. you're, you're out of luck. You gotta go somewhere else. Like, whenever I get an exorcism, I need an area code, you know? Uh, uh, I guess that is important. I mean, like, okay, cool, what area code? Oh, I can't help you, sorry, you gotta go to so-and-so. Like, I mean, you should go to your uh, local well, one. Like, right, it makes sense. But if you can't get to them, or what if, like, and this is a question I actually just thought of, like, what if your local priest doesn't have the ability to do exorcism. That, that's the thing. Because, like, like I, I know we don't have anything in our notes, but, like, right now, um, when we were, like, researching a lot of this, yeah. there are not many exorcists. No. I think, I think that's, like, 50. There's 50 in the country, I think. Is that what we looked up? Or, I think it was, like, around 50, 50 in the country. Yeah. And it's, like, so there's, what, that's, what, one per state? That, that's a low amount. And, that, and that's, like, you know, so, like, how many, I mean, that makes you ask, like, how many exorcisms are they going through in a, a year? Or? So that that's actually an interesting point. Um, Gabriel Amworth, uh, he's a very famous exorcist. Yeah. He, he said that he did over 30,000 exorcisms, right? Right. And he said out of those 30,000, only 94, <gasps> only 94 he considered to be actual exorcisms. Wait, which, but that also raises the question, like... How in the, like, out of 30,000, 94 were only major exorcisms. So how does how do they reach that point? I think I have to ask that. Like, how do they under, like, how do they reach the point where they go, okay, we've ruled out every other option. We need to do a major exorcism. Exactly. So I actually, um, I have that as my next part of this. Like, Perfect. It, that works perfectly. Um, so may anyone receive, like, a major exorcism? Right. So it's just, like, some of the canon that, like, the rules behind it. Okay. Uh, since the rites of exorcism are categorized as sacramentals, okay. effectively as blessings, uh, the practice of who may receive major exorcisms is governed by canon 1170. Okay. So basically, it, it does have rules that who can and cannot get it. Yeah. But um, let, let's just go for, like, the, the first one, the mm-hmm. first amount, like, group of people that are allowed to get it are obviously Catholics. Right, because they're yeah. going, going through the Roman Catholic Church, you know, they're, they're yeah. there all the time. Makes sense. So that, that makes sense. Makes sense, yeah. Uh, the second category is catechumens, which are just the people, like, normal, like, Christians are kind of, like, going into the rites of becoming a Catholic. Okay. So th- th- they're allowed to get it. Right. Uh, Non-Catholic Christians who request it... 
which is that I find that interesting. That actually is a little surprising because you would think the Catholic Church would be like, well, you're not Catholic, or and you're not going through the steps to be Catholic. So why would they give somebody who's a pro- like a Protestant like an exorcism? But I think that's interesting. It speaks to the Christian beliefs that that, that they have. Of everybody's worthy of that. And, exactly. Uh, but I think that I think that says a lot about exorcism in general. Exactly. Well. So uh, and then the fourth category is actually non Christians who uh, believe that they need to get an exorcism and that desire to like get it, mm-hmm. which I I find that baffling. Uh, like it's just like. I don't know. I, the non-Christian believers who request it, it's like, well, if they're going to you, that means right. they request it. Yeah, well, and but that makes that actually makes me think, like, if somebody who say, are are they Jewish? Are they Muslim? Like, can they go to a Catholic priest and get an exorcism then if they believe they need it? I, I mean, I, I feel like a lot of them like would just go to like if if they're Jewish, they go to a synagogue, to a synagogue or, or, like, or a mosque if they're if they're Muslim. But yeah, but I, I think that's a fair question. It, I mean, it like, is fair. But, you know, what if they can't get to one and they're like, well, based on like what we're going to talk about with the conjuring, they know Catholic priests do exorcisms. Yeah, like I, I think that's interesting that they go, hey, like even if you're not Christian, you can still get an exorcism if you need it. Exactly. And, and I think that raises the question of when do you need an exorcism? Like, I, I know you're getting ready to talk about that, but like, what? when do you decide that you need one and when does a priest decide that you need one? Well, there, there are guidelines to, for that. Uh, so according to the Vatican guidelines in 1999, the person who claims to be possessed must be evaluated by doctors to rule out mental or physical illness, which I, I think that's a very important step. That's very much overlooked in like day to day. And I have examples down. Well, and I, and I think bringing it up into the in the Conjuring films, that isn't something that gets talked about really yeah. at all. And I know we're gonna I know we're gonna talk about that later on. But it's like you have this idea that like if there is you know being mental or physical illness, like being able to rule that out is extremely important because you don't yeah. want to go perform an exorcism on somebody that's you know on, you know schizophrenic or is like struggling with a physical illness and you know I mean and we're going to talk obviously about what that can do to somebody's body later on but like you factor that in as well and that could be a huge issue yeah I definitely think that looking at, like, the mental and physical illness is an important aspect. Mm-hmm. Like I brought up before, only 94 people. Yeah, out of 30,000. Exactly. So how do you weed out who is and who is not right. needing an, ex- an exorcism? So that's an important step and in figuring it out. Yeah. Um, it, it says that in many times the person usually just needs spiritual or medical help, mm-hmm. which, which makes sense. Right. And it's just trying to give them that spiritual or medical help that they that, desperately that, need. That they need rather than jumping straight to exorcism. Because it, it's a massive step. Yeah, that's a, and that would be a big step to go from, oh, you're dealing with mental illness, let's go ahead and exercise you for demons. Like, yeah. that's a, there's a logic jump there that doesn't quite make sense. Exactly. So, how does a priest become an exorcist? We, we've talked about, like, if you need an exorcism, but, like, that that's something that, like, I don't think many people bring up. Yeah, well, like, and you brought up there's only, what, 50 in the country? Exactly. Like, so, how the heck do only 50 priests get to become exorcists? Like, I think that's important that, to talk Exactly, because I, I don't think many people know that there's that few. Right, I didn't know that there was that few until we started this research. I mean, I, yeah. you know, most people are like, oh, you know, there are exorcists. Like, you watch movies about it, you watch The Exorcist, and you're like, oh, these priests know how to do an exorcism. Well, cool, that doesn't mean 
every priest is an exorcist, which I think is, yeah. is interesting. So basically, how does a priest become an exorcist? Uh, so they are appointed to the office of exorcist. Uh, usually it's by the diocesan bishop, so whichever diocese you're near. Um, in either case, the exorcist should be closely, so should, sorry, should work closely with and under the direction of the bishop of the area. Okay. Uh, and they have a section, um, Canon 1172, Section 2, that kind of goes over it and um, basically says some of the things that are, are needed. Yeah. Uh, like they need um, piety, knowledge, prudence, and integrity of life. And I think that's interesting that they bring up piety, especially integrity of life. Like I... I feel like you, when you look at that, you could go, okay, well, can that be defined objectively, or is that from exorcist to exorcist, or yeah. is that based on Christian doctrine? Is that based on? Yeah, I, I think that it, it, for me, I look at that and it, it, I have like a list of questions just going through my head that we obviously don't have the answers to right now. Yeah, but I, I think that is fascinating, and I, I think also uh, going through the process of becoming an exorcist also is extremely important. It is a very important process. No, there's actually something that I find. Like, it's really cool to think about. Uh, did you know that priests actually have an exorcist, like, outfit that they put on for it? No. Like, that's actually dictated. So, uh, the priest must wear a type of embroidered white tunic called a surplice alongside with a pur- purple stole, right? Okay. That, that's just weird but, to think. Like, there's a specific outfit. Well, and I think, I look at it like this, you know, you think to, again, going back to The Conjuring, going to The Exorcist, the move, going to popular culture and talking about exorcisms, they're never dressed like that. Yeah, I, I don't know if you've noticed that, like in the Exorcist, I think the priests are dressed in all black. Because that, that's the public perception of right, what the looks like. Yeah, and they're carrying like the rosaries and the holy water, but they're not dressed in what's described here yeah. in canon law, which I think is really fascinating that they're taking that slight turn away from what's actually described by the Catholic Church. Exactly. So during this um, exorcism, what the priests will usually do is they call upon the help of the saints, uh, they pray, and then they read excerpts uh, from the Bible, the ones of Jesus driving out the demons. And and they use that, they do it over and over and over again to try to, like, help cure the person, which I I think that's a fascinating way to, like, go about it. Because, like, there's nothing in the Bible, that at least that I know of, that dictates. And I can't think of anything outside of, like... Uh, outside of what's brought up here, um, I, I mean, it does make me think of like again going to The Exorcist or The Conjuring, like going to these films yeah. where it's portrayed and constantly hearing the power of Christ compels you over and over again. And I'm not actually, I don't think that's actually a piece of scripture that I know of. I, I do not know of it. It, it could be, it could, could be not. Yeah, I I'm personally not, did I'm, not research that. I so. haven't researched it myself, but I, I know that's something that's constantly brought up in those types of films where yeah. exorcists. Or exorcists are portrayed, um, which I think. So I think it's interesting to see the difference from that versus this. Yes, but like the, the process of it also can be very damaging to you. Oh yeah, I can imagine. Like it, it can really cause damage, especially like a lot of cases have dehydration, mm-hmm. starvation, and, and there's so many people that have actually died. Really, from exorcisms. Like when you think of an exorcism, you just think kind of like a. Uh, at least the way I do it, see, see it. It's just like a lot of praying, a lot of praying, a lot of praying. But it's hard to kind of conceptualize that people have died. Yeah, I, I agree. Like, you know, you think about an exorcism and you think, I think the first thing that comes to people's mind is the, the Pentecostal form of exorcism. Yes. Laying of hands, things like that. But like, like you mentioned, like dehydration, like 
how long are these going to there? I actually have some cases I that, that I, I would love to hear them. So probably the most famous of all the cases is of Annalise Michelle. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was from 1976, a 23 year old um, German girl. Okay. Uh, she actually died from dehydration and malnutrition because she had over 60 exorcisms performed on her in the 10 month span. 10 months. 10 months. That's such a long time to go. 60 exorcisms in 10 months. I can't fathom that. Like, I, that yeah. actually doesn't, like, comprehend in my brain. I, I don't actually have words for that. Uh, so she was um, exercised because uh, she had epilepsy and depression. So they saw that as, like, a, oh, she must be possessed by the devil because she had these epileptic fits mm-hmm. and, like... It's it's a terrible thing to think about. And she ended up dying due to dehydration and malnutrition. But I think that also brings up the point of where the psychological and physical evaluations that the Catholic Church have come in. Yes. Is this could have been prevented. It could have been. Very easily. And they did change the way that they go about it in 1999. There was a massive change. So I think part of that was to help relieve things like this from happening. Right. The saddest part about this case is that the mood, like the event, was made into a movie. So they're profiting off of the misfortune of this girl and, exactly. and her family. Like, like, don't get me wrong. I, I love, I love horror movies, but they're profiting off of death. Yeah, that, and well, that's not the only example either. No, yeah. Uh, there's a nun uh, from Romania. Mm-hmm. Basically, she um, was exercised by. They tied her to a cross and then stuffed a cloth in her mouth, right? And then left her for days without food or water. What? Yeah. So they crucified her. Yes. Let's start there. That they is crucified. one of the most painful ways to die. They crucified her. And then they suffocated her. Yes. And, and get this. Get this. That was also made into a movie. Oh. A 2012 Romanian film called Beyond the Hills. Oh, my gosh. Like, I, I look at that and I just go, in what world... Does that make sense? And I, and I think that's kind of where I I think most people look at exorcism and they go, oh, hang on, like, yeah. what is this? Um, but I think going into the, the films, talking about these that are made into films, I think moving into outside of the church is also super important um, because obviously exorcisms do get performed without the Catholic Church being involved. Um, I know in our research we found quite a few that were done under Pentecostal faith. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also think talking about people who are not connected to the church, and obviously two of the biggest names there are Ed and Lorraine Warren. Exactly. Um, who, <laughs> I believe Ed was what, a bus driver when I think he first so. started. Uh, he met Lorraine when they were like 17. And... You know, Lorraine is a self-proclaimed clairvoyant and psychic, uh, can can see, you know, ghosts and demons and spirits, and Ed proclaimed to be like this self-taught demonologist. And obviously, you know, when people think of Ed and Lorraine Warren, they think of naturally the Conjuring films, exactly, uh, which they are quote unquote based on their cases. Um, but there are obviously differences between the films and the movies, or the films in real life, excuse me. And I think it's so interesting to look at. Did they fabricate their evidence? Is this stuff that's, you know, 
obviously actually happened. Um, and I think the first thing to start with is uh, in, in the first Conjuring movie, you know, like Annabelle, the doll, yeah. that porcelain doll that's shown in the in the film. It's not porcelain. Yeah, for, that, that, that's pretty big. For, for starters. I, I don't know. Like, if, if I had a possessed doll, I'd much rather it be kind of fluffy. Yeah. Rather than like, being, like, a porcelain well, doll. And, and in their museum, it, it's a Raggedy Ann doll. And it just yeah. sits there. Like, I would much rather, if something's going to kill me. <laughs> at least it'd be fluffy. At least it'd be soft and fluffy while it kills me. It's not, you know, a porcelain doll that's, you know, moving around and leaving messages. But that actually wasn't connected in the original Conjuring case at all. Really? No, not at all. Um. It was actually a separate case that happened a few years earlier um, with these with two nursing students that the, the Warrens were brought in on because the doll was supposedly moving around and leaving messages and you know, giving them, you know, freaking them out, basically. Yeah. Um, the Conjuring itself focuses on uh, this family in Massachusetts who was dealing with uh, supposedly this possession by uh, like a Salem witch in that area. And the Warrens were brought in to investigate the paranormal activity. And um, they were actually brought in to help bring in the Catholic Church to perform an exorcism, yeah. at least in the film. In real life, they just did a seance. They actually didn't perform an exorcism. No Catholic priest was ever brought onto the premises. You see that right there. That's a major difference. Like, right. it, it, it is technically, technically still a kind of exorcism compared to the Catholic Church. It'd be like a simple exorcism. Right. But the gravity of the situation is so different. It, it, it's so different. It, it really is. And... But for the most part, outside of those little differences, I mean, most of The Conjuring is based off their case files. And yeah. Lorraine Warren was listed as a consultant for the film. Great. You know, that one seems pretty cut and dry. Yeah. The Conjuring 2, I, I had to laugh at this one, <laughs> yeah. um, was the, the Enfield poltergeist hauntings, which took place in England. Yeah. The Warrens are said to have been brought on by the family. They showed up uninvited. They were very minor investigators in this case, and they were there for maybe 24 hours. And they turned this into a full feature-length film when the family said, like, yeah, they showed up, were there for 24 hours, said we could make a bunch of money, and dipped. Like, so I look at that and I go, okay, how in the world does this, you know, line up? Like, how much information did they actually have? But in doing my research on that case, I found it really fascinating because there are pictures of one of the really girls in the Hodgson family levitating above her bed, supposedly. Yes, those are very famous pictures. Yeah, very famous pictures. I mean, if, if you haven't seen them, you need to go look at them. But when I looked at them, I laughed because it doesn't look like somebody levitating. It, it looks really like a, doesn't. It looks like a 12-year-old girl jumping, jumping on the bed. off her bed. Exactly. And, well, and there's reports of other paranormal investigators who were there who saw the, her and her sister bending spoons and, like, trying to kind of fabricate this idea of a haunting. And maybe there was paranormal activity. You know, I'm not yeah, going to go we out. We can't be there. I, I wasn't there. I, I'm not going to go out and, you know, go, oh, they're completely wrong. It's a total hoax. Like, I'm not going to debunk what they've said. I did not witness it. I'm just putting that out there. But it's interesting that this was made into a movie. <laughs> And the people who are shown in the movie... To be prominent. Yeah, to be prominent. The Warrens were there for 24 hours. So I look at that and I go, this was... They, they never really had a case here. They just showed up to get their names in, in, out there to the public. Which it, I, yeah. Um, and I just, like, I kind of shake my head at that because it's like, how in the world does a full movie get made out of people being there for 24 hours? And it also is also very, like, 
very exaggerated. Oh, uh, extremely. Like the one scene. Oh, where like the the crosses are just being turned upside down. Like the whole room of crosses. Oh, that, that didn't happen. That did not I, happen. Oh, come on. If that happened, I'd want to see that because like that would be pretty significant evidence. I would yeah. think of something more going on. Um, and I think you know, and obviously the contract too has a lot that is exaggerated, embellished, clearly didn't happen or was very minimal. And then talking about The Conjuring 3, we, we had a really good discussion in doing our research about Oh, this. wow. Um, and I I remember sitting there as you were explaining some of this to me. Like, the first half of the movie, I think we agreed, was fairly well done, fairly historically accurate. It, it was pretty well done. Like, it, it had r &E, It had, like, the Glatzel family. Yeah. Um, one thing I noticed was, like, the description of the uh, the original possession of David, uh, David Glatzel, it was slightly embellished in the film. It didn't happen quite the way he testified that it did. Um, you know, with, like, the the hand, you know, grabbing him and, like, out of the waterbed and things like that. Like, obviously that... The, the, it's fabrication for viewership. For, for viewership, exactly. It's Which, like, like we, we understand. Like, it yeah, makes sense. That makes sense. You know, you can only do so much with... With a court case. With a court case, you know, and... But I think what's so interesting is this was the first time that possession had been used in a U.S. court case. Which is just boggling to me. <laughs> Especially with, like, Salem. Right. Well, you, you think about it this way. Like, it was the first time it had ever been entered into U.S. law, in a court of law. And the fact that it was even used is kind of impressive, you know, because you think about the judicial system and you think about separation of church and state. And then and it starts to kind of blur that line when you're like, OK, well, this person, yeah, they committed. They definitely they killed the person. They killed this person. But they did it because they were possessed. But by also, was it him? Was it him? But I think that opens up a giant can of worms in that regard. But it's interesting to see that there is, like, an example of this actually being brought into the public eye. Yeah. I mean, and it, it really is kind of, kind of cool to look at. I mean, granted, the defense got tossed out. I mean, yeah. Almost immediately. But, like, viewership. They want to drag it out. They want to make it look... Right. And in talking about that, you know, I mean, the second half of the film... Goes, oh, gosh. Uh, like, it goes... Well, it goes into the occult. I mean, c come on. Like, we know that didn't happen based uh, like, on the evidence yeah. we have. Yeah. Uh, and, like, so... But, which, again, goes back to that embellishment for viewership. It goes back to the idea that, well, this, you know, how do we make this interesting? Yeah. And in the same with exorcisms, you know, you think about the conjuring where exorcisms are performed or the cross is turning upside down or, you know, this cult, the occult being involved in this whole possession case in, in Massachusetts. And it's and insane. It's, 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 it's insane. I will, I will say that it's insane, but it, it shows just how much, like when you think of the words, you know, based on a true story or based on these cases, how much of that do you have to include? And I think that's something that we wanted to talk about, especially. Exactly. But I feel like first we should go back to mm -hmm. Ed and Lorraine Warren, right? Yeah, absolutely. Because, like, they had so much scandal around them. Oh, yeah, like absolutely. Both they had scandal when it comes to, like, spiritual, like, all their stuff being faked. Yeah. And we, we touched on that. Which we like, touched on that. Yeah, I mean, they fabricated their cases. I mean. <laughs> they, they spent, what, 24 hours in Enfield? Yeah, in Enfield, they were there for 24 hours. Like, in the third movie, right, um, there's a whole part at the very end where um, Ed Warren is, like, fighting the Satanist. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that, <laughs> come on. That didn't happen. Like, like Ed Warren's an old man. He, yeah. Like, I think no by, offense. He, by that point, he would have been, he was born, like, 1926. I think that movie takes place in, like, the 80s. 80s. I mean, he's in his 60s. 
He's not fighting off a group of. He's looking same. good for six. Uh, I mean, I'll, I'll, give, I'll give Hollywood some credit there. They made him look really good. Um, but but it's interesting. It is. It's interesting that you know I look at that and I go, okay, this is a guy who's supposed to be sixty years old. You're not even fighting a group of Satanists, like okay. Like, it makes sense, but, you know, you're trying to do it for, you know, for entertainment value, obviously. You're, you're doing it to, you know, let your audience enjoy what you're what you're putting on screen. Which I understand for a viewership, because, like, it is a very high-grossing film. Like, oh, yeah, I think... It's like, what? It was, like, $813 million or something. We like, $840 million, yeah, like, between all three all films. All three films. Which, that's, that's a lot of money. And that doesn't even include all the, the spinoffs, the nun... Annabelle, all of the films that encompass that universe. Yeah, I would argue and say that universe is, like, going to be like the MCU. Yeah. There's going to be so many tie-ins from different, like La Llorona. And I know there yeah. was another group that did La Llorona. Shout out to them. Yeah, they Great group. can't wait to hear that. I'm sure they did a fantastic job on that. But, um, like, it, it, there's so many different things that can be tied into it. And especially if, like... Just Ed and Lorraine Warren just showing up to your house for like a minute, you can make them like the centerpiece of your film. And that was actually something that you you were talking about scandal with the Warrens. That actually happened with the third Conjuring movie. That family only got like $2,000 out of the whole case. And I think about how much money that movie has grossed, and I can't imagine. It's like 200 million. Yeah, like how much of that money has that family seen? Probably none. Uh, I, didn't you say it was like something? I, I can't remember. It was like two thousand. Yeah, it was like two thousand dollars. Two thousand oh. for your son or someone in your family going into like prison. Yeah, you see two thousand dollars for that story. Come on, really? Like that's crazy. And you know, I think for me, I, I look at that and I go, "How much money did the Warrens make off of that?" And probably a lot. Make off of it, and it's not even just money. No, it's fame. It's fame. It's publicity. Because like. They don't spend as much time or do as much with these like cases as they claim or are portrayed in the movie to and, have done. And other paranormal investigators have come out and said, yeah, like they didn't do half of what they said they do in their case files or any of that. Like they've come out and said, like, this is ridiculous. Like Exactly. It's just a case, in my opinion, and you can always disagree with me. Absolutely. In my opinion, it's a case of them trying to take credit. Oh, for other people's work mm-hmm. and try to create a story where there's nothing there. Right, absolutely. And Because, like, the Enfield, it, it's pretty well known that, like, well, can't say well known. It, it's thought, mm-hmm. highly thought, that that is a false story. It looks, yeah. like, from the pictures, from the evidence, it, it looks like it was fabricated. Yeah, absolutely. And yet the Warrens who showed up for 24 hours... Went, profited. Profited off of it, went and ran with it, and made it into a multi-million dollar movie. Exactly. It's like, what, $300 million? Yeah. Like, that. that's a lot of money. That, and off of a story that doesn't really have a lot of evidence to corroborate it. Like I said, I wasn't there. I'm not going to debunk what the family might have gone through. That's not fair to them. But I think that brings us to a point where it's like, okay, these movies are supposedly all based on... True events. True events that the from the Warren's case files. And I think leaving our audience and our listeners with the idea of like, what is a true story? What constitutes being based on a true story? Exactly. Because, um, like, we, we went through the evidence. Like, we explained what, like, constitutes exorcism, some of the traits, some of that stuff. And, and we can see, like, it is very different mm-hmm. from the ways the movies portray them. Absolutely. And these are these are dangerous things. Absolutely. Like, people have died from exorcisms. And what a lot of, like, things, like, are based off in Hollywood 
are these stories where people have died? Like people, like the the exorcism of Emily Rose. Mm-hmm. Someone died, and they went and turned it into a, a movie. A movie, and I. But I think it again goes to like, okay, you, if there is any kernel of truth. Can you claim that's based on a true story? And it's a very open-ended question. You know, we are not going to have a definitive answer for that. I don't think there is a definitive answer. No, I don't either. But I think it's definitely something for our viewers and our listeners to think about, when, not in just in the realm of demonology, but in film and entertainment in, in general. general. And that goes for history as well. You know, I think talking about The Conjuring films, like the next time you watch The Conjuring, sit and go, hang on a minute. Like, is this really something that happened or is this something that was fabricated and brought into this film for viewers? Exactly. Um, and I, I think that really is just uh, it's something to really consider. Like, what is based? What is based on a true story mean in this context? And I think that's something kind of just food for thought. For thought. Exactly. And, you know, I obviously want to give a shout out to, to Dr. Hackett and uh, the NKU History Department. This has been an amazing project. It's been so much fun. And it's I, an opportunity it's to a, grow. It's an opportunity to grow and it's an opportunity to do something that I personally have never done before. Never, it's, like that either. It's been so much fun. But again, to just kind of end it off, what is based on a true story? That is something that we want you to think about. And honestly, people, you know, you'll be able to respond to this podcast if you want to be able to reach out to us and go, well, here's what I think. I want to hear it. I want to hear it. So, yeah. Great. So to leave off, my name is Chase. My name is Chris. And this is Demonology, Demonology in the Conjuring. Conjuring.